Well, what's the worst kind of music, Jordan? All right, you want to offend whoever you want to offend. Just honest answer. EDM, 100% the worst kind of music. I went to the person that I knew would affirm my, my point here, but EDM is the worst kind of music. I mean, some of my favorite bands um, have been delving into the EDM section of, um, of the musical variety at the moment and has ruined them, hasn't it, Jordan? It's just, it's, they're just not as good as they used to be. You know, these bands that were once excellent getting into the EDM route, right? And let me tell you what really sucks about EDM. I'll get into the, the whole mix of it. There's some young people looking at me like I'm throwing a bit of dirt in their eye or something at this point of time, uh, to quote the great movie Spider-Man 3. Um, some people are looking at me like I'm really offending them, but EDM is basically just a broken record. But for young, for young people who don't know what a record is, it was a black disc that you used to put on a spinning thing and you put a needle on and it would play music. Now, sometimes, now, for the Spotify generation, let me just break it down for you a little bit further. Sometimes your record would get a little nick in it and it would do the whole playing of a thing over and over again. So, to, as an example, you know, um, I was listening, I would listen to my parents' Keith Green record, and every now and then it would make my life, make my life, make my life, make my life, make my life. It just sounds like EDM, doesn't it? Make my life, make my life, make my life. Make, that's, that's what EDM is, essentially. It's a broken record. Sampled music is just a record stuck on repeat. And listen, you know, we know that there's a history of, of sampling. You go back to, to uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite by the Beatles, you know, they're, they're sampling music in that, in that, right? I'm pretty sure John Lennon just put on a record and it broke and then they just made a song out of it or something. It's terrible music and there was nothing worse than a broken record when you wanted just to listen to a song and then it just got stuck on that one part. I mean, it'll drive a man to insanity, right? Maybe that's where the whole culture thing has gone wrong for us. People have been driven to insanity by EDM. I'm not sure, not going to make too many, too many comments about that, but who has felt the last couple of years have been somewhat like a broken record? We go into this time of COVID, I mean, I mean, in fact, every time I've preached um, at the North, pretty much over the last couple of years, we've ended up in lockdown like the next week. So let's hope that that's not a, another repeat uh, today. But um, somehow over the last couple of years, there's been a sense that we are stuck on repeat. The record is broken. There's a nick there. It's coming around and oh, it's make my life, make my life, make my life. Lockdown now, lockdown now, lockdown now. Oh, we're out. No, we're not. We're back again. Life on repeat. We want to get into a bit of a moment in, in the Word uh, where I think it feels like life had been stuck on repeat. We're going to turn to Numbers 22. Life 
stuck on repeat. I mean, my life is currently stuck on repeat. And this is the, the life that I'm currently stuck on repeat of, listening to Let It Go from the Frozen soundtrack over and over and over again. Like, if there's a way to drive a man to a quick confession, that's it. Like, it's torturous. Uh, after being, you know, one car trip, where I have to listen to that song over and over again, Chanel could ask me anything, and I would give any answer. Whatever you want, love. No more Frozen, please. If it's not Frozen, it's Moana. I live a Disney life now. I used to have an edge. I used to be in a metal band, would you believe? Me and Jordan, we were, we were the best. But um, yeah, apparently now we just listen to Disney songs. But that's, that's the future for Jordan as well. Jordan's life's about to be stuck on repeat too. We're no longer just Huzz bros, we're now Bubs bros. And one day, maybe we'll be able to uh, become stay-at-home dads and just hang out at the park together. And that's our ultimate dream and our master plan that we set out however many years ago out the front of Greensboro um, NMIT when Uni Hill was there. Our master plan and it's coming to fruition. So let's have a look at verse 1 of Numbers 22. Just a bit of context. We're looking at Moses here and he's been in the wilderness now for some time. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin and they stayed at Kadesh where Miriam died and was buried. You know, when we read Numbers and when we read uh, this section of the Old Testament, it's really easy to skim over very significant moments. It's very easy to read what's happening and to miss something very significant. Because contextually, Miriam, Moses' sister here, dies. And this sister played a very significant part in Moses' life. And she passes away. How easy is it to skim over that very significant point? That this is probably a very difficult time for Moses. Those closest to him are passing away. They're dying. The Israelites have now wandered in the desert for years and years and the generation that left Egypt are beginning to die. That's very significant, right? This is a very difficult time. There is a changing of a, the guard in leadership here. There is a generational shift occurring. And this is, would have been a quite painful moment in time for Moses. Then we head to verse 2. Now, there was no water for the community. This is another very significant moment, very significant challenge that we pass over very quickly. We don't pay attention to the significance of this issue. There is this emerging social and leadership emergency um, emerging, occurring at this same time. Amongst the difficulty of a personal crisis, there is a leadership crisis, a dangerous situation for the multitudes in the wilderness. 
this is actually quite a serious problem. It would be easy to judge the Israelites here as ungrateful, um, difficult, um, unfaithful ninnies who are just having a good old sook as they um, tended to do. But let's have a look at the um, let's have a look at a bit more of the context here. There were six hundred thousand able-bodied men. Six hundred thousand able-bodied men, meaning that there were many more women, children, those who were not able-bodied. In fact, some estimates are that it was up to 2.5 million people. 2.5 million people in the desert without water. And I'm not sure if you understand the desolation that occurs when a community doesn't have water. Think about situations in the third world. Think about the context that emerge when communities don't have water or don't have clean water. Think about the desolation of drought in our own rural communities and the the desolation that occurs for livestock, for for growing things. Think about uh, communities that have suffered drought around the world and the famines that have occurred out of that. Think of places like Yemen currently, which is suffering under drought and civil war. Think about uh, places like Ethiopia. You know, the reason that there was a uh, famine in the 80s was drought. And that famine was so bad that newsreaders broke down and cried when uh, the pictures of what was unfolding in Ethiopia were shown on television. There is desolation that comes with no water. In the, in the situation of Ethiopia, over a million people died. So what Moses is, is facing here is a serious, a very serious issue, right? We skim over, but he's got 2.5 million people in the desert, give or take, and these people have no water. Yet, this is a situation that they've been in before. This is not the first time Moses has found himself in a situation where these people don't have water. Let's head to verse 2. And the people uh, gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt into this terrible place? Heard it before. This is not the first time Moses has heard this, is it? Once again, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Things are better back in Egypt. Once again, the record is broken. It has no grains, no figs, no grapevines, no pomegranates. Now, this is a good indication that there is a strong Italian sentiment happening here amongst the Israelites. Figs, grapes, pomegranates. Like, I understand. These are very important parts of life here. There's no water to drink. 
So Moses hears a common complaint, the unfortunately common refrain of wandering Israel. Things were better in Egypt. The Israelites have begun to complain like they had before. And I would say at this point, Moses' stress compounds even further. In verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Once again, Moses goes to the tent of meeting as he's done many times before. Moses and Aaron assume the common prayer position as he's done many times before. And guess what? The glory of the Lord appears to them as has happened many times before. By this stage, you must wonder if Moses is having deja vu, if there is a glitch in the matrix. As things have been done before, they are happening again. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Speaking of water, could I please grab some? Because I am um, about to get to the uh, Barry White stage of my voice. And it will pour out its water. Thank you, Talisha. Great. You will bring water out of the rock for the community, and so they and their livestock can drink. God gives clear instruction to Moses and Aaron the method of the provision that they need. Clear instruction. Speak to the rock and it will bring out water. God has an answer for the issues that the Israelites are facing. He gives a command to the method they're to use to bring about provision for the people. Take the staff. Gather the people. And speak to the rock. That's something Moses has done before. He's taken the staff a million times, right? He's gathered the people all these times. And now he just needs to speak to the rock. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. This is from verse 10. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses does the first two things, right? He gets his trusty staff and he gathers the people. He had done miracles with that staff who knows how many times now. Struck the Nile, parted the Red Sea, thrown it down and turned it to a snake and he picked it back up again. He held it in battle. That staff had been with him, man. That was a powerful staff. It's been with him. He's used it. It's a great staff. What a staff. I mean... It's the staff of history, right? That staff had had achieved things that you would not believe. It was Moses' trusty staff. Proven, used over and over again. This is a great staff to use for miracles, right? And he had thousands of these meetings before. Thousands of these meetings He'd gathered the Israelites together thousands of times, you know, and he'd addressed the people to display the power of God to them many times as well. He'd addressed them 
with tablets of stone under his arms, with the law, with displays of God's healing power and provision for times of repentance. But something changes in Moses this time that he gathers together. And it's subtle, but it's dangerous. Continuing from verse 9. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Do you notice the change in what Moses has said here? Must we bring water out of this rock? Moses' heart is not for the provision of his people. It becomes evident that he's frustrated and angry with both the people that he leads and their constant talk of rebellion, their constant talk of the better days in Egypt. In modern times, we would say that he's burnt out. He's the poor pastor who's got a million people on his doorstep every day saying things were better back in the olden days when we used to sing, you know, nothing but the blood and Keith Green or whatever gave the song that they thought was best or, you know, when Hillsong was better or when, when you know, elevation music was better, when there were guitars in music, when there was no drums in music, when there was an organ. You know, there's so many different ways to cut the, cut the cake here because every generation thinks their style of music was the best style of music, which is why I don't like EDM, right? Everyone thinks that preaching was better back in the olden days. I mean, the benefit of, of hindsight is often we don't actually remember well, right? We sometimes think that things were better than what they were. You know, often if you find a recording of something that you thought was absolutely awesome, you discover it wasn't really that good. He's burnt out. And so instead of Moses obediently speaking to the rock, he arrogantly puts himself in the seat of the one delivering the miracle. Moses puts himself in the seat of the one delivering the miracle. The speech here is uncalled for. It implies a claim that himself, not God, will produce the water. And in its arrogance, in its self-belief, in its pointing to himself, it fails to actually point to the one who is doing the miracle. It fails to actually exalt Yahweh. Verse 11, Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his arm. Instead of doing what God commanded, he does what he has done before to prove results. He circles round, gets his trusty staff, and he hits the rock. You know, it's not the first time that Moses has done this either. You know, Moses hit a lot of things with this rock, this staff. He's hit waters. He's hit... Um, a rock before, in fact, produce water. In Exodus 17, verse 6, the Israelites rebel. Surprise, surprise. Here we are again. Israelites rebel due to a lack of water. God commands Moses to strike a rock. This is in Exodus 17. And water flows from the rock. 
Instead of doing what God has commanded here, speaking to the rock, Moses does or returns to a methodology that he has used before to prove results. He defaults to what we would call religious action rather than faithful obedience. He puts his trust in the method rather than the one who has commanded the method or given the method in the first place. He relies on the tool, his staff, then perhaps the one who has given uh, the tool in the first place. And possibly here Moses has become full of self-belief. Well, this is me we're talking about. I'm Moses. I hit the Red Sea with the staff. I hit the rock with the staff. I did the snake thing. You know, I've done all this staff stuff. I can hit the rock. And he trusts that in his own power, hitting the rock will produce water rather than trusting in the methodology of Yahweh. Verse 11 continues. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. And Nathan did too. God still does a miracle. God still does a miracle. Moses is disobedient. Moses doesn't do what God had asked him to do. And yet, God still does a miracle. God still provides the needed water. God's heart is still for his people. Even if Moses' isn't. Even if the messengers isn't. God's heart is still for his people. God still comes through and provides. Even though they're disobedient. Even though there's disobedience. Even though they do the wrong thing. God still provides. Rebellion doesn't necessarily mean that God won't come through. Our rebellion doesn't necessarily mean that God is still not is still not going to use that to provide for others, right? Sometimes we think just because God hasn't punished us for our sin, just because God hasn't punished us when we're in rebellion, that God affirms our lifestyle or sin. But the truth is, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. God's faithfulness is much larger than our unfaithfulness. Even when we're disobedient to Him, even when we do the wrong thing, even when we point towards ourselves, even when we trust in other things, God's faithfulness is greater than our unfaithfulness. You know, when I look at Scout, Scout is evidence to how faithful God is in the face of unfaithfulness, right? I was a deeply unfaithful person. I wasn't going to go there, but I am. I'm feeling like I'm doing this a lot lately. But in my pain, in my moment of suffering, in my moment of hurt, I made a series of bad decisions. 
a series of unfaithful decisions, a series of decisions that meant that my first marriage died a very horrible death. And it hurt a lot of people around me. It hurt my family around me. It hurt the people that I used to lead. It hurt um, myself. It hurt my wife. We held on to a promise in my first marriage that God would bring about a miracle and that we would have a child, even though it seemed very unlikely. And it didn't happen. I took matters into my own hands. I did the things that I thought were right, even though they were very wrong. And years later, years later, I have a little girl in my arms. God's faithfulness extended greater and well beyond, well beyond my unfaithfulness. And do you know what? You know the astounding thing is? My ex-wife, about a week before I had a baby, had a baby also. God's faithfulness extended well beyond my unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness extended well beyond the evil that I had done. Was there longer term consequences? Yeah, absolutely. It was a long road for me to walk back. Was there faithfulness from God? Absolutely. Yes. And that's what we see. That's what we see happening here in Numbers 22. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I have given to them. God is situationally faithful. But there is a larger consequence. There is always a consequence of rebellion. Moses and Aaron failed to believe in Yahweh by claiming that they themselves could bring water from the rock. In so doing, they failed to honour his holiness in the eyes of Israel and therefore they deprive Yahweh of his due honour. Because they did not honour Yahweh, they are deprived then of their future honour. They will not lead the Israelites into the promised land. The greater promise is deprived from them because they deprived God of his true honour by not trusting him, which is shown through their actions. God is situationally faithful, but there is a larger future loss due to Moses' decision. After all these years of wandering, after all these years in the wilderness, his future honour is deprived of him. How desperately sad. Verse 13, these were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarrelled with the Lord and he was proved as holy among 
them. Now, here's a bit of an interesting aside to this passage. Many Bible scholars actually put forward that uh, New Testament uh, Scripture teaches that this rock in the desert was intended by God to be a picture of His Son, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. When the Lord instructed Moses to strike the rock in Exodus 17, he intended to establish a picture of Christ as our Redeemer. The Bible says repeatedly in Psalms and Isaiah that Christ is our rock and cornerstone, struck for our sake, and that he will bring forth streams of living water. Hebrews says that Christ died once and for all, and no further sacrifice is needed for sin. God intended Moses to strike the rock in the desert only once. Only once in the scene from Exodus 17. Just as Jesus sacrificed only once to bring us salvation. Later in Numbers 20, the Lord instructs Moses to... uh, only speak to the rock to preserve the picture created in Exodus 17. When Moses chose to strike the rock instead, he corrupts the picture that God has created here. Here, God allowed Moses' mistake, but he doesn't leave it unchallenged. We would like to think that it's no big deal, right? No big deal. No big deal, just did something. God came through anyway. But God makes this distorted picture a really big deal. Had he left it unchallenged, maybe we would conclude that the rock, Jesus Christ, would need to be struck over and over and over again for our salvation. So God rebukes Moses to ensure our proper understanding of the picture of the rock, barring him from entering the promised land. In the process, God has provided a new picture to support a proper understanding of salvation here. By barring Moses from the promised land, the Lord illustrated that we cannot enter into salvation, i.e. the promised land, by works of the law, i.e. works of Moses, but only through the works of Yeshua. Can I get the band to come back up? Here, God preserves what he is saying to his people. Let's go back to Numbers 20. Where do we find ourselves in that narrative? Where do we find ourselves here? 
Because as I read about Moses in this challenging situation, I can't help but wonder how I would lead in this situation. How I would behave in this situation. Leading through uh, social challenges, a season of personal pain. How would I live in this dire situation of having no water and not knowing where my next drink might come from? How would I lead not knowing whether or not my family would have enough to drink or not? How would I lead not knowing if those around me, those I lead, would have enough to survive? How would I lead not knowing if God would come through again? How would you? Who are you in this narrative? How would you find yourself in that situation? How would you react to this massive implosion of social pressure that would be coming on your shoulders? If you had 2.5 million people depending on you for water when there was none, how would you lead? Let's be honest. It probably wouldn't be our best moment. And let's also be honest. We all live with varying degrees of challenge, amen? Some of us are in leadership, some of us are not. But all of us have influence in areas of life. Influence in our work, influence in our church, influence in our family, influence in our own home. We have influence, but we live with challenges in each one of these areas. Faith challenges, hope challenges, just living day-to-day challenges. Some felt, some very real world. We live through uh, familial issues. We live through money problems. We live through problems affording petrol when it skyrockets into the stratosphere. For anyone that owns a four-wheel drive, I'm thinking of you at this point of time in history. Like, we, we live with crises with people at work. Uh, we live with challenges of feeling unfruitful. We live... Uh, with challenges that we feel need God's intervention. We live with sickness. We live with, with difficulty in our health. We live with difficulty in our lives in differing and varying ways. All of us have these varying amounts in varying areas. And where does our reaction go when we find ourselves in crisis? Do we cycle back round to the way things have been or have gone before? Or do we obediently listen and obey God's call forward? What was the right choice once will not perpetually be the right choice. That rails against us a little bit. We like the comfort of repetition, right? We like EDM in our lives. We like the broken record. It's easy to know what's coming up, how it's happening. But God is challenging us that we need to change. We need to do things differently because there is not one perpetually right choice. God calls us to 
obedience, not repetition. God calls us to obedience, not samishness. God calls us to obedience, not simply religious action. God calls us to change. Unfortunately, it's true. God calls us to change, to do things in a different way for great purpose. Our God is in the business of changing people. Our God is in the business of changing us. And guys, if we don't think that means that we need to change how we do things, then we're in a a very funny place. God was calling Moses to do something differently for great purpose, to demonstrate something very significant. But Moses cycled back round to do things the way that he knew. And in doing so, he accidentally put himself at the centre as the one who saves rather than God. Our obedience, our obedience to the call of God, our obedience to what God is calling us out to do, our obedience to change points to Jesus Christ. Our obedience in Him is what points to His glory. If we are not obedient to God, we're not pointing to God. We need to be obedient to Him. And to be obedient to Him, that means that we need to step out into change. So where do we go in seasons of need? Where do we go in seasons of need? Because something that I'm asking myself, when I grow frustrated, when I grow tired, do I default to religious action? Just doing things the way that I know how to do because it's worked for the last 10, 20 odd years? Or do I go to faithful obedience? Do I allow God to move and work? And when I find myself in situations of personal difficulty and challenge, do I trust in a method just because it worked before? Do I trust in a method just because it's worked before? Can you hear why that's dangerous? Do you hear why trusting in a method is dangerous? It's dangerous because we can return to bad ways of living. Behaviours that helped us cope in the past are not always good behaviours. What would it look like for me to return to coping with difficult situations in the ways that I'd done in the past? Well, I'd return to smoking. I'd return to heavy drinking. I'd return to uh, being a a man on the land and just doing whatever I wanted to do. For other people, it might be, you know, a return to addiction, to rage. It might be a return to spiritual nonsense. It might be a return to, to the garbage spiritual stuff that the world talks about. So on and so forth. But God is in the business of changing people. If we get stuck in the process, then we won't change. Or if we begin to trust the method more than the one who gave it, like Moses and his staff, then we will stick to the method and not follow the path of Jesus Christ that He is taking us down. So often we rely on the tool and perhaps think the tool is where the power comes from rather than the one who gave the tool in the first place. We think God will move if we just do something in a particular way. 
You know, if we think about the church just as an example, this can look like, you know, if we have more lights, if we have better videos, if we have better preaching, if we preach like a mega church preaches, if we have moving lights, if we have smoke, if we have, you know, strobe lights, and if it all becomes like that, then the church is going to grow and it's going to be spiritually awakened. You know, we begin to trust in tools more than we trust in the Spirit of God and His change and His leading. But personally and corporately, um, it, it can move down into a deep level. It can move into a really deep area of belief. If I pray in a special kind of way, then God will move. How dangerous is that, right? How dangerous is that for a person who's sick or unwell? Or if only you had enough faith and you prayed in a certain way, then you're going to get well. What garbage! What garbage! There's no magic prayer. God doesn't require some magical, special set of words and actions. God requires obedience. Here's another one. Salvation only comes if you pray a certain kind of prayer. If you say the special magic words, if you say the sinner's prayer, then you're going to be saved, right? You have to say the magic selection of words in order to be saved. Well, someone should inform Jesus that on the cross when He talks to the repentant thief, right? Because as far as I can tell, the repentant thief did not say the sinner's prayer. Here's some other things that we might uh, think that mean God's moving or that a change will happen. You know, when God is moving, then people fall over. Yeah, I'm not I'm not criticizing, you know, these legitimate moves of God where these things happen. Do they always happen? Are they a, a methodology that we need to to chase? Maybe, maybe not. Here's another one. The elders need to sit up on the stage and be important because the elders are really much more important than the general congregant. That's an old school one. Maybe more along the lines is, you know, the pastor has a special connection to God. You know, this is really amazing thing. I don't have a special connection to God over and above anyone in the room here. Charles doesn't have a special connection to God. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is that we have a God who is not separate or relegated to a priesthood. He's in our living rooms, He's in our cars, He's in our workplaces, He's with us. Each and every one of these things are tools, but they're not the power in themselves. God doesn't want more people trusting in tools. He wants more people trusting in Him. God wants obedience. So beware of thinking that you are enough. Beware the lie that the self-esteem squad are selling. The, the hashtag I'm enough squad. It's a poison pill. Guess what? We're not enough. We're not enough. Now, these things might have some merit. They don't have no merit, but we need not to rely on our own understanding. We need not rely on our own self-belief. We need to acknowledge 
God first. Put the belief in God first through actions of obedience. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your paths straight. When the path of life goes awry, believing in yourself is not enough. Self-belief is not enough. Submission, obedience to the will of God is what we need. We need not to listen to ourselves or to the counsel of the past, but to God's calling and we need to obey. So let me ask you a question. Where do you need to submit to the call of God? Where is it? that you need to be obedient? Where is it that you need to step out of the comfort of what you've known, what you've done before, what you've been caught in an EDM loop of? Where do you need to step out into obedience? Who is the person that God's been calling you out to pray for? Who is the person that you have been called by God to visit? Who is uh, the person that you have been called to care for? Where is the place you have been called to? What have you been called to say? What thing have you been called out by God into obedience to? Where are we stuck in a loop?